It's, it's, been, it's kind of fun joking about it, but it's kind of uh, been a struggle not seeing people for three or four months and just you know, being disconnected. So it's great that you're here. The only uh, difficulty about being here in the first service is that we're doing child dedications in the second service. So we figured dedicating them twice might be a bit redundant, so we, just, we had to pick one. So if uh, you want to still enjoy that and see it, well, you can uh, scramble home and see some of it on live stream, which we do during the second service. Well, it's good to have you here. I'm going to invite you simply to bow with me as we present ourselves before the Lord as we continue to worship by stepping into his word. Father, thank you for this great family that we belong to. And I just continue to pray that we would, uh, you would increase the value of this relationship that we have with one another. Father, help us to nurture and cherish it in very special ways, uh, to continue to encourage one another day after day, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, Father, we have this unique uh, dynamic that you have given to us because of Christ, and uh, we pray that you would help us learn that as different uh, as we are in terms of social economics and ages and generations, that we would find much to share about in this common bond that we have in Christ. And we ask that you will continue to help nurture that in one another, to speak into one another's lives and help us to see the uh, life from your perspective. Because at times it's hard for us to see through the eyes of Christ the things that are going on in our own life and in our world. And so we ask for that wisdom that your spirit will continue to be our teacher and we humble ourselves before your throne of grace because this is the place where we find uh, the kind of help and the grace and the mercy in our time of need. And so for all of this, we pray and give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. I have often heard people complain about the Old Testament, uh, they, and mostly about the God of the Old Testament. I've actually heard people talk that there must be two different gods written about in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there seems to be an angry God who is severe and he's harsh and he disciplines. He's always sort of beating people up. Uh, he does seems to do some unconscionable things in terms of asking his people to destroy other nations, which ends up including victims uh, who are innocent, and, and it, the list goes on in terms of how disturbing people see the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament seems a lot more uh, embraceable, uh, that he's the one that is full of mercy and kindness and love, and we sometimes separate these two, and sometimes in our own minds have a hard time thinking about the differences between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Well, I think I can assure you that the scriptures are pretty clear that it's the same God. There's not multiple gods, it's the same God, so why things so differently? Well, the way I sort of do it, and we have to scale it down on a whole different level, but I think about growing up with my own parents. Uh, there are times when we stepped out of line that my dad seemed a little bit harsh. Uh, I usually got that when he pulled out his belt. Uh, he bent us over our beds and thrashed us one because of our attitudes or our behavior. Now, those are moments that I wasn't particularly happy with my dad. I thought he was unfair. We'd grit our teeth and we would bear with whatever came and then we would be angry and snorting around for about a couple of hours and then mom would call us to dinner and everything would be fine because there was nothing that solved problems in our family faster than just eating food. The, but if you think about it, there's times that our parents as we grew up seem very unfair 
and harsh. In fact, I remember uh, listening to some friends at times that basically would tell their parents, I don't like you anymore, I hate you, you're not my parent, I'm running away from home, and then the three-year-old tries to figure out where exactly they're going to go. There's times that parents seem profoundly unfair, and yet at the same time we realize that there are times that our parents have been so generous, they've been so gracious to us as kids, that we know that we don't deserve the kindness that they've been showing us. Well, that may seem maybe a small way to illustrate it, but one of the things that we're dealing with today is the idea of the severity and the kindness of God. And it's a difficult text in the sense that there is a whole complexity of things that we're not going to get into, but starting in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 23 pardon me, verse 22, I want to read through the text and then try to help us understand how is there a God who seems at times very severe and other times profoundly kind, and how do we marry those things together? It begins by saying this, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even then, if you do not continue in their, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Well, there's a lot of metaphors and a lot of pictures there, and it can get very confusing. We may try to snapshot maybe a perspective of that as we go through here. But I simply want to remind you that if God is really who he is, that he is not only holy and he's righteous and he's just and he's moral, there's a time that when God's people and people of the world step way out of bounds, out of that sense of justice and that sense of holiness and that sense of righteousness and morality, that God speaks into that. And sometimes it seems profoundly harsh. From a human perspective, we don't get it because the the punishment never seems to fit the crime when we look at the Old Testament. And the other side of it, we often don't value the tremendous kindness of God in ways that, because we often think we're entitled to it. And so as we walk through here, we're reminded of some simple truths, but hopefully some challenges as we think about the implications. Uh, I think back to uh, Adam and Eve. And when we talk about severity, I want you to think about it in three ways. Severity to the human race, and then severity to Israel, and then severity towards the Gentiles. And I'm simply reminding you of some things that likely you already know. When God goes back to the garden and he provides for Adam and Eve, he says, I am giving you a super abundance. God is profoundly kind in providing everything in their needs for food and water and everything else, more than that that they can even deal with. But on the severe side, he says, there's one single tree that I don't want you to eat of it. And the warning was simply this, if you eat of it, you will die. Now, from a purely human perspective, that seems a little bit overkill. I mean, why is it that eating one single piece of fruit means that they're going to die? And and what are really the implications of that? And so as you see them violating God's trust and they step out and they decide they're going to act on their own initiative, as it were, and they take this fruit, then the consequences are not only universal, but they're catastrophic. 
that all of a sudden now sin and suffering and pain and death, physical death, spiritual death, relational death, marriage death, all this starts to just sort of overwhelm the concept of humanity. And so as God runs into this, we discover in the Old Testament that he is both a God who is kind, but he's severe. His severity with Israel really touches base back in chapter 11, verse 7 and 8, and let me remind you of that. What Israel was seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened just as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to hear, uh, and pardon me, eyes to see, not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So we have in Romans uh, this picture of God's severity towards humanity where he says the wrath of God is revealed or poised against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. That's, their, that's God's posture before all humanity. That's our condition before a holy and righteous God. He doesn't unleash it, but it is poised to land on humanity. When he comes to Israel, his own people, we discover that there's a certain kindness and severity with them. God, in Romans 9, chose them to be his crown jewel in in the world, his kingdom of priests, those who would represent God in the world and have a ministry to to the nations. And yet there were certain conditions that had to be met in order to fulfill that role and that responsibility. And yet we discover in Romans chapter 11 that Israel had wandered away from the God that had saved them, that had given them all these privileges. And even though they'd been exposed to it their whole life, they'd gone through the festivals, they were given the law, they had the patriarchs, they had the history, they had the legacy, they had all these benefits in order to understand this relationship with God, they ended up being far more committed to the idea of religion and tradition than they had to the relationship with God. And it's because of that that then their ears stopped hearing. They, they, they heard God but weren't listening. They understood the text and the, and the law but they weren't doing it. And, and so they become so familiar that they had basically devalued their relationship with God and chose a self-directed life to do their own thing. They had hardened their hearts, and the punishment was that God was going to deal with them. He often disciplined them. He provoked them to get them to repent of their sin, and he did it persistently, and he did it incessantly, and he kept repeating it, and he gave them more opportunities. And the more opportunities God gave at times, the more they hardened their hearts. And so we we see this severity even with his own people, that is, seems extreme. When you read through the Old Testament, God brought in other nations and they literally destroyed cities and killed them and hauled them off into prison. Hauled them off into chains and, and made them slaves and servants of other nations. Now you might, from a human perspective, there's always this tendency to say, well, wait a minute, why, why such severe punishment? And if there's anything you pull away from today, one of the reasons is we have such a myopic, superficial view of sin. We have lost a sense of how abhorrent sin is to God. In the Old Testament, you see God dealing with it from a judicial way, according to the law. And so we see a God who is stepping into the human condition, even with his own people, and he will punish them and discipline them, and some of them got destroyed, and the sin of some causes a tremendous collateral damage of others. But, we, but the problem is, is they started making excuses, and they started looking at sin from a super, 
superficial perspective. It's like we could take a modern day saying, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I guess I can do what I want. And the problem is, is that the, the, the spiritual collateral damage of sin is devastating. And that's why you see God acting so severely and harshly in the Old Testament. He also will act severely with the Gentiles. Notice in the text, verses 19 through 21, he says this. You will say, and he's talking to the Gentiles, well, those branches were broken off so that I, the Gentile, might be grafted in. Apparently, we're, we're, we're now more important than they are. We're more special because we've, they've lost their privilege, now we get to step into it. Paul says, well, quite right, the reality is they were broken off so that God could graft you in, but they were, uh, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited or arrogant, but fear. For, it is God, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And so again, you see this severity of God and this kindness of God that come from the same person. And God's love is part of the makeup of this, but we have to realize, we talk about unconditional love incessantly, but we need to realize that God's love in some respects has many conditions to it. And we don't often pay attention to it. But we know this with Israel that God said, listen, if you will obey my covenant, if you will be faithful to me, if you will keep my word, then you will be, you'll have this responsibility and this role and this status of being a kingdom of priests. But if you disobey me, you're going to lose the privilege. I don't know if you remember King Uzziah. He was made king in the Old Testament when he was 16 years old, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He had a lot of team that helped support the movement towards keeping God central in terms of Israel. But there's a statement that's made in 2 Chronicles 26 where it says, when he became strong, he became so proud that he acted corruptly and, and was unfaithful to the Lord. A few verses later, you're going to read a statement that basically says, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death because leprosy was a sort of an immediate judgment and discipline that God inflicted upon him because of his arrogance and his disobedience. And it says that he lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord and his son took over for him. I, I want to make one mention. One of the things that you see all the way through the scriptures, all the New Testament, is that if there's any one landmine, if there's one thing that becomes the greatest enemy to genuine faith, it's arrogance and pride. That was the problem with Uzziah. That was the problem with Nebuchadnezzar. That was the problem with King David, is that the greatest enemy to genuine faith and knowing God's blessing is arrogance and pride. Now, we all have to deal with it. I, I would love to be able to stand before you and say, ah, I don't deal with pride, but the very statement kind of begs the question. And I know we all struggle with a sense of pride in different ways, and it's anchored to different aspects of our life. For some people, they're so proud that they beat themselves up incessantly because they're, they can do so much better than what they're doing. Other people are very condescending and they're critical of other people because they're not like them. And pride separates marriages because people can't learn how to <laughs> figure it out. There, there's all kinds of things, but the, the greatest obstacle to genuine faith becomes pride and arrogance. And, and we often see this in that God, that's what God deals with. Now, let me mention 
that when you read through a text like this and you see, well, this metaphor where God breaks off some of Israel and he puts in the Gentiles and he grafts them in and then he warns them saying, listen, if you don't stay in his kind, God's going to break you off. I want to show a quick chart here just to kind of give you a big picture. We can't spend really any time on this, but I want you to notice that he is dealing with four different kinds of things. In fact, there's a a fairly complex element of this, but he's dealing at times with the nation of Israel, them as an entire people group that God has chosen where where Messiah comes from, that he gave the law. That's true of them regardless of their own personal spiritual condition. There are people that are descendants of Abraham physically that are part of that lineage. Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and scribes where they go, well, Abraham's our father. And he turns around and says, yeah, but your father's the devil. That'd be a little jarring. So there's this physical entity called the nation of Israel. And yet we've already seen in Romans that he's talked about kind of a spiritual Israel that came from Jacob that they're children of the promise. And so not everybody who is a physical descendant of Abraham is part of God's chosen people. And so you have this national entity of Israel, then you have individuals. The same with the Gentiles. When, when the church began, it sort of exploded with a very Jewish uh, base to it in terms of what happens, but now most churches are filled with Gentiles, people that are non-Jews. There's a, there's a whole messianic movement and, and there's, it's amazing to see what God does in sort of double blessing them as those individuals come to Christ. But the question often would come up in a text like this, is this talking about people losing their salvation? If God breaks them off uh, and then throws them away, does that mean they lose their salvation? Well, the simple answer, which is going to be difficult just to give because we're missing so much conversation in this, is the simple answer is no. Because I believe that there's elements here where he's saying, well, Israel's a nation. He's broken some of them off and he's grafted in the, the Gentiles because he's dealing with them as a people group who's going to represent him in the world. This is my, my kingdom of priests. These are my ambassadors that I'm calling. And if they sin to a point where they were failing at that responsibility, God says, all right, well, now I'm going to use some other people to be my ambassadors. You've disqualified yourself from that role and responsibility because of your character and conduct. But at the same time, he's also talking about individuals where he says, well, I'm grafting the Gentiles in. That's true as a people that the opportunity for all Gentiles of all backgrounds, of all ethnic groups, have the opportunity to experience God's kindness through the gospel of Christ. And so this won't solve anything for you in terms of it, but we need to realize that he is talking from two different perspectives about two different groups of people. And we'll see that a little bit next week. But you'll see it in the statements that he makes, the severity and the kindness of God. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either, verse 21. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Is he thinking about that in a personal sense where someone loses their salvation? I think he's back talking about the the people group, the, the, the ambassadors, the representatives. And we know that history, if you read the scriptures, that Israel at some point is going to come very much back on the scene to be the crown jewel of God's representation in the world. We'll see in a few verses in chapter 11 that that God has put a hardening on the Jews till the fullness of the Gentiles comes into the kingdom. And so it gets very complicated, but we need to understand that in all of this complexity, all this confusion that might go 
One is, I don't think it's talking about individuals losing their salvation. I think they lose their privilege, they lose their status, they, lose, they miss God, disqualify themselves from God's blessing, but those who are not chosen never had the faith in the first place. Those who are hardened, he even makes a statement, those who are chosen obtain God's righteousness, but those the rest, they're hardened. And so we have these statements about they'll have eyes to see, but they won't see anything. They have ears and they'll hear, but they're not listening. He's really talking about the kind of heart that really hears and responds to God. But what I want to finish with is this idea of the kindness of God. Because there's two very important statements here that I think are very relevant to where we live. And that is that the kindness that God shows, not just to the Jews and the Gentiles today, is the gospel of Jesus. It's, it's the message that there is a substitute who, rather than us absorbing the wrath of God that he talks about in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed, it's poised upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that Jesus came as a substitute, and rather than us taking the blow of God's wrath, then Christ is the one that's going to be our substitute. And he was suffered, and he was brutalized, and he was tortured, and he was crucified on a cross to take your place, the punishment that you and I deserve. And the only thing that devalues that in our experience is we go, oh, well, my sin doesn't really deserve death. I mean, I've done some things, but boy, I don't really deserve to be crushed. I don't deserve to be killed for the things that I've done. And what's happened is even in our own context as Christians, we often devalue sin and how abhorrent it is to God, and so Christ's death doesn't mean as much to us. We know that's the way we have to get saved, and so we've trusted Jesus, but I want you to see another side of this thing. It also has to drive the way we live, if we really understand it. For instance, we've talked a lot about the fact that God... In our culture, when we talk about God's unconditional love, I, I think that gets interpreted very differently than the way we think. God does not love and accept any of us the way we are. He does love everyone, but he does not love and accept any of us the way we are. God loves us despite who we are because Romans 5 says we're Weak, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and we're enemies of God. So he loves everyone despite who we are. The only basis by which God accepts us is through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and becoming a child of God. And so we need to understand that even there, and this might sound confusing, but I'm going to say it anyway, even when we are put faith in Christ, God doesn't accept us the way we are He gives us a new nature, he makes us a child of God, and then the whole rest of our journey is to learn to live for him and not ourselves. He wants to change our character into the image of Christ, so he doesn't accept or leave us the way we are. And so the statement here, God's kindness, Romans 11, 22, uh, he says, note the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Now, does that mean I'm going to lose my salvation? Well, it's really saying, how should we then live? And let me just put it in this, these two ways. It's about abandoning something and adopting something. 
The first one is this, and it's centered on the gospel. When we trust Christ, we are abandoning, abandoning our existing beliefs, our values, our morality, our priorities, our behaviors, and our character shaped by our families and the world and the culture and the things that we think are right. We're abandoning all of those things because we are now going to adopt a way of life where God becomes our master teacher and he is going and we are to adopt his beliefs and the values that he says is important and the priorities that should shape our lives and the morality that we ought to have and the behaviors and the habits and the character that will glorify Christ. So God doesn't accept, he accepts us because we're a child of God but he still doesn't leave us the way we are. And, and if we're going to experience his blessing as, as opposed to his discipline and severity, he says you need to keep living in this kindness. Don't devalue it. In fact, exalt the kindness of God. Know how privileged we are to have this relationship with God. And it calls for surrender of life and saying, God, my life is at your total disposal. You teach me what I'm supposed to believe now. I don't care what I think and what my common sense says. You tell me what the values I need to have. You tell me what priorities I need to have. Because I have my own priorities, but man, that's like tearing my marriage apart. Because my wife has different priorities than I have. We're going to do a child dedication. It says, children, obey your parents. Any kids old enough to get, hear that? Parents will hear it. They'll remind them, right? But that why? Well, sometimes you don't feel like obeying your parents, but what does God say? Well, if you're going to be in God's kindness and live that way, you obey your parents even at times when they seem unfair. Why? Because that's what God calls you to do as a kid. And so as you begin to understand the elements of this, he also says that if, hey, listen, if these people... If God can take you away and you lose this privilege as being ambassadors for God, God can take Jews and graft them back in. Now, he's going to do it as a nation down the road, but he does it now as individuals through the gospel. And here's my point. If we really valued the gospel in our own life and how we should live, it should mean complete surrender so that I now live for him and not myself. But the fact that God was still grafting people into the kingdom of God and into the body of Christ says one of the greatest commitments I need to have is to sharing the gospel of Jesus with others. That's what needs to drive our life. That's what needs to drive our behavior. That's what needs to travel, to, we need to value so that it becomes part of our priorities. And I want to I encourage you to say, to, to, to look at this, is that we have a God who is holy. We don't want to provoke him to severity, to discipline us because we are setting the direction for our own life and we're living immorally and we've devalued sin so we've given ourselves permission to do certain things that aren't going to hurt anybody else so we're okay with it because I don't know how to conquer it. And I need to live my life not in isolation, but connected to people who don't know Jesus so that we get the opportunity to share the gospel of hope with them as well. Is that what's shaping your, your life? Is that what gives you hope and encouragement? I encourage you to consider that we serve a God who is severe and harsh at times, 
but he's also profoundly kind. Continue in his kindness so that you will know his blessing and his favor to empower your life to glorify him. Father, we thank you that you aren't just a schizophrenic God who at some times loses his temper and just destroys people for no reason at all. We have lost the horror and the abhorrence of sin and how revolting that is to you. That's why Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon all of our ungodliness and all of our unrighteousness and all of our immorality. That's the status of humanity before a holy and righteous God. But your profound kindness is seen that you sent your one and only son who died for our sin, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scripture so that all who believe in him will have eternal life and will not perish. Thank you that you're a God who is whole and complete. Help us to see our lives and the lives of others through the lens of the gospel, through a God who is holy, but a God who is also compassionate and merciful. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.